Amen. And you may be seated, and if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We have been on this passage for, this was the fourth Sunday. Uh, I think five Sundays ago I preached verses 5 through 11 in total. And then in the last two Sundays I've taken certain elements of Christ, His eternity, His humility, His humanity, His deity. And we've looked at those in very close detail And I would say that we have worshipped well as we have done that. This morning will be the last, I think, the last of my sermon series on Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and then we will progress on from there. And this morning I just want to draw to your attention an amazing feature of this passage. This passage covers all of history in one simple verse. It begins with eternity past, when we see that Jesus Christ was in the form of God. And there was never a time when Jesus Christ was not in the form of God. And so there we have a view from eternity past. Then it focuses in on the the season of history when Jesus Christ took on flesh and dwelt amongst us. as Emmanuel, God with us. Because it says that He was born in the likeness of men. The one who was God for eternity was born in the likeness of men. He took on flesh. He added flesh to Himself. And then we look and we read today in verses 9 through 11, we look into the future. Because in the future, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is referencing a future moment in history that will happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So this is a very intriguing, very amazing passage of Scripture. So we see the past, the incarnation, and the future of God the Son, Jesus Christ. Well, this morning we're going to take out of this passage... The three names that are referenced in the future perspective that we have on Jesus Christ. We are going to take on these three names and we're going to look into what these three names mean. Because there is tremendous significance in the name of Jesus. In the name and title of Christ. And in the title, in the name of Lord. We're going to look at those three names in detail this morning. Before we do that. I want to establish a foundation here for us to appreciate these names fully. In the Bible, names are given great significance. And there are occasions in the Bible where God stops and gives us the meaning of a name of a character in Scripture. He doesn't do it all the time, but He does it pretty frequently. And so this morning, to establish the importance of the names of Jesus Christ and Lord, I want to look at some Old Testament names and what God did with these names. And namely, I'm going to give you two of them. Two of the most significant names in the history of Israel, in the history of the church, are that of Abraham and Jacob. So if you will, turn with me real quickly to Genesis chapter 17. We're going to look real quick there, and then we're going to jump over to Genesis 32. I want to show you where God gives the name of Abraham to a man named Abram. And I want to show you the significance of this name. As I said, in many cases in Scripture, God pauses. 
He did it with Eve. We understand that Eve is the mother of all living. Well, we fast forward now to the history of Israel and we find Abram being named in Genesis 17, 15. Here it says, no longer, this is God speaking, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Just look at that little conjunction for. In fact, that would be a good word for you to circle in your Bibles. For denotes that here comes the meaning of the new name Abraham. And accordingly, God says, you're not going to be Abram anymore. Your name shall be Abraham because, by definition, you will be made the father of a multitude of nations. How multitudinous is that nation? It is uncountable. As you look into the heavens and you see the stars, you can't count them. That's how many have come from the from the name of Abraham, the father of nations. That's those that would believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So another key example, turn just a few pages to the right to Genesis 32. We'll spend a little bit more time here because this is even more significant. In Genesis 32, starting in verse 24, we see that Jacob is given a new name by God. And there is great significance in this name. Read with me Genesis 32, starting in verse 24, we'll go through 31. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. What an amazing passage of Scripture. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For, there's that word again, for, here comes the definition. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him, and he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Love to preach just this passage of Scripture this morning, but it is a reference point for us. Maybe another time we'll be able to do that. Here we have this man named Jacob who wrestles with a man that remains nameless, even though he inquires of his name. And this man that he's wrestling with assigns Jacob a new name. And this new name is rather significant in the history of God's people. This new name is Israel. And he says, because you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. That's what Israel means. Well, we need to understand who this character is that Jacob wrestles with. This is tremendously mysterious. But we have something in Scripture that we call Christophanies. This is a a manifestation of God the Son pre-incarnation. 
We spent so much time last Sunday on the incarnation. This Sunday, we look at Jesus Christ, God the Son, pre-incarnate, because He did make some appearances in the Old Testament before He took on flesh and dwelt among us. And there are many of those. That would be a great Sunday night topic one day. So here we have the pre-incarnate Christ, and I say this because the Scriptures tell us very clearly that God, the Father, is spirit. He does not have a body. John 1.18 says that no one has ever seen God except for the only God, the Son. He has made Him known to us. That's true in the Old Testament, and that is true in the New Testament. So here we have a Christophany. Jesus, God the Son, is the one wrestling with Jacob. And God the Son is the one who gives Jacob the new name of Israel. Now I belabor that for this point. Israel is a precursor, a foreshadowing, ultimately, of Jesus Christ. I want you to watch this in Exodus 4.22. Don't turn there. It's a short passage. Let me read it to you. God says to Moses, as Moses has asked God, whom shall I say sent me to say all these things to Pharaoh to free Israel? God says, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel, the nation is my firstborn son. Well, God the Father's firstborn son ultimately is God the Son, Jesus Christ. He is firstborn of all of creation, begotten but not made, and he is firstborn from the dead. And there will many that will follow after him in belief and faith in him. And so referring to Israel as his firstborn son foreshadows God the Son, Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate meeting of the Old Testament Israel. And isn't it interesting that pre-incarnate Christ renames Jacob Israel, a name that Christ himself will ultimately fulfill. Because you see, Jesus Christ himself strived with man and strived with God and survived. He strived with man and God on the cross. God had a predestined plan. He knew the plan before the foundation of the world. It was not just foreknowledge. It was a definite plan that he would die on a cross. And yet the scriptures say, you Israelites killed Jesus Christ on the cross. So he strived with God and he strived with man on the cross. And through the resurrection, he survived it. So the New Testament takes all the references of the Old Testament Israel and applies them to Jesus Christ. I'll give you some examples. Jesus Christ is the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. We looked at that passage in depth last week. Jesus Christ is the son of David who was the ultimate king of Israel. Jesus Christ is the ultimate prophet. He is the ultimate priest. He is the ultimate king, as the book of Hebrews tells us. So Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the nation of Israel. Israel's purpose was to point to Israel, Jesus Christ. He underwent divine judgment. Watch how his life mirrors the life of Israel. He underwent divine judgment by God by hanging on a cross And paying the price for sin. Israel sinned against God. He punished them with Syria and Assyria and Babylon and on and on and on. 
Well, Jesus Christ bore the wrath, the divine judgment of God for sin, just like the nation of Israel did. Jesus Christ was one who was sent out to exile. His exile lasted for three days when he was in the grave. And that mimicked Israel and the Babylonian captivity. But at some point, after all of that time of exile, he experienced restoration. Israel was brought out of Babylon back in. In the book of Nehemiah and Ezra, they rebuild the wall. They start temple worship again. They're restored. Well, Jesus Christ was restored. How was he restored? On the third day, he rose from the dead. His life, his death, his burial burial and his resurrection all track with the history of Israel. Jesus Christ is the ultimate Israel. And he renamed Jacob Israel. So that he could become the ultimate Israel. We the church become the Israel of God. As we unite our hearts to this Jesus Christ through faith. And so we are Israel in Christ. We are God's chosen people. And we worship him today. And I say we worship him forever and ever and eternity. Just like God the Son lives and, and, and worships God the Father as well. So with this application for God's names for people, let's look at the names that are given to God the Son incarnate, Jesus Christ and Lord. Look with me in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 9, and here's what Paul tells us. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now you see why I'm spending so much time on name this morning. Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. First, I want to take this name, Jesus Christ. We'll look at Lord here in a moment. There are two unique names right there, Jesus and Christ. I don't know if you've ever stopped to wonder what do these names mean, but it is a good exercise for God's people to understand what the names are that were assigned to God the Son in the flesh. Both names have significant meanings and implications. They're not just common names. This is not like Joe. Okay, these are specific names with huge implications for us. And both of them have deep Old Testament roots. These are Old Testament names and they have a purpose behind them when God assigned them to Jesus Christ, God the Son. First, let's look at the name Jesus. This is the name that was given to him at birth. Matthew was inspired by God to tell us the important definition of this name. There's an angel that appears to Joseph before Mary has given birth. Joseph is perplexed that his wife, whom, that he is betrothed to, he's not yet been with her, is pregnant. He's considering whether or not he should give her secretly a decree of divorce because she has broken sexual purity in their engagement. The angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. And the angel told him specifically what he should do in embracing this child. He should give him a name. And here's what it says. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for, there's that word again. We heard it in Abraham's renaming. We heard it in Jacob's renaming. For he will save his people 
from their sins. What a great name. What a name that we need. Jesus means He will save His people from their sins. So Jesus' name is derived from what Jesus does. It's more than just a name. It's a work. And He is named after His work. This ties to the Old Testament name of Joshua. Real quickly, originally Joshua went by the name of Hosea. And in Numbers 16, 13, Moses renames Hosea. Now, Hosea means he saves. But the, the text tells us in Numbers 16 that, God, that Moses renames him Joshua, which means God saves. So he tweaked his name just a bit from he saves to God saves. Well, that's significant because the Hebrew name of Joshua is Yeshua. And Yeshua transliterates into Greek into Iesus, and that name is Jesus. And so Jesus bears the name of the Old Testament Joshua or Yeshua. And that Old Testament name of Joshua means God saves, and therefore the New Testament name of Jesus means God saves, for he will save his people from their sins. Don't know if you've known this about the name Jesus, but there is massive significance in this name that the angel told Joseph to give him. God saved Israel from many opponents through the leadership of Joshua. The list is long. But ultimately, Joshua is the one that leads Israel into the promised land. And I want you to know that Jesus Christ is the one that leads God's people ultimately into the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth by saving us from our sins. Jesus, he saves his people from their sins. He did it on a cross. He did it in exile in the grave for three days. And he did it when he was resurrected on the third day. Through those three feats, Jesus Christ lived out His name, saving us from our sins. The second title or name in this Jesus Christ nomenclature is Christ. This name has huge significance as well. It must never be thought of as Jesus' surname. It's not some tag-on title. There is great specific purpose behind this title. The name Christ is Greek Christos, and it comes from the Hebrew name Messiah. So Christ and Messiah in the Hebrew and the Greek are one and the same. We learn this from Scripture in John chapter 1. When Andrew has discovered Jesus, his desire is to immediately go introduce Peter to this one that he has discovered, and listen to what it says. John writes in John 1.41, He found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. And then John puts in the parentheses, which means Christ. So there the Bible tells us that Messiah and Christ mean the one and the same thing. And we need to understand this. The meaning of the word Messiah is this. It means promised one or anointed one. 
So there was one in the Old Testament that was referred to as the Messiah, and he was promised in the future to come. Andrew is astonished and excited because he has discovered the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one. He has been delivered upon. So Christ is the promised one, the Messiah of the Old Testament. And every Jewish person was anticipating with great longing the coming of this one. Tragically, today, there are still people in, in uh, biological Israel, geographic Israel, that are still waiting for the coming one. I'm here to say to you this morning, he has come. His name is Jesus, and he saves people from their sins. So Andrew was overcome with shock and joy, and he set out immediately to tell his brother of whom he had discovered. That is something that we'll talk about at the end that we need to imitate and repeat. So if we put these two names together now, Jesus and Christ, he was the promised one who will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means. If we put these together and we consider these two names in unison, we get a glimpse into the character of God. We get a glimpse into the character of God. And we understand from these names that our God is a God of promises. He's a God of promises. This whole Bible is full of promises that God has made over the millennia, over the centuries, through all the generations. He's a God of promises. Our God also, we need to understand, keeps Every single one of his promises. He's never made a promise and the response to that has been, no, not really. He has always made a promise and the promises have always been, yes. And the Bible tells us that they are all yes in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, 19 and 20. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That's a fancy way for Paul to tell us that God made promises and God fulfilled those promises in His Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one and that promise that God made was I will save you from your sins and he does that through Jesus God the son incarnate Emmanuel God with us so God makes promises and every one of them is fulfilled in Jesus Christ alone alone God has chosen to make all of his promises, yes, through his son, not through any other means, not through any other person, only in his son and his work on the cross, his work in the grave and his work in the resurrection. Jesus Christ is the yes of God. Now you just pause for a moment and worship him in all that splendor and glory. Jesus Christ is the yes to all of God's promises said it like what a privilege to stand before you and utter these words and they're straight out of the scriptures this is what god would have us to know so the name of jesus christ reflects who he is he's the promised one 
and what he does. He saves his people from their sins. I want you to just take a quick survey with me of of the scriptures that talk about the magnificence of the name of Jesus Christ. There is great power and there is great effect in this name, Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12, just write these reference points down. Acts 4.12, and there is, no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You hear the preeminence of the name of Jesus Christ. There is no other name by which we must be saved. Acts 2.38, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. It's in the name of Jesus Christ. And His name says who He is and what He did. We need to know who He is and what He did. Luke 24, Jesus Himself encounters the two disciples on the road to Damascus. And here's what we read. He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem. So here we're even given instructions that our evangelism must be done with the name of Jesus and the name of Christ on our tongue in every occurrence to all the nations. John ten forty three. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And lastly, John 20, 31, John says all kinds of things could be written beyond what's in this book of mine, but these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And I could go on and on and on. So the Scriptures are screaming at us this morning. That the name of Jesus Christ is ultimate, is non-negotiable, is preeminent, and it has within it salvation and eternal life. How do you get it? You have to believe in His name. And in believing in His name, you will believe in who He is and what He did in your place. He saved you from your sins by dying on a cross, by striving with men and striving with God and surviving it. Resurrection. The name of Jesus Christ. So his name describes who he is and what he has done. Now let's go to this title. There's a new name that God the Father bestows upon Jesus Christ. For the passage says that he... Excuse me, so that at the name of Jesus, I'm sorry, back in verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Pause for a moment. That name is not Jesus Christ because he already had that name. He was given that name at birth. Andrew assigned that name to him when he discovered him and told Peter about him. So there is a name that is going to be bestowed upon Jesus Christ, and that name is going to be above every name. And that name is going to cause every knee to bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's pretty comprehensive. And every tongue to confess, and you could rightly say in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ, there's the name that we've known, is the new name, Lord. Lord. The name of Lord is the name of sovereignty. The name of Lord is a name of majesty. God goes so far to say that He will be Lord of Lords. This is a name that must be uttered with reverence. We don't trifle with this name. We utter this name in prayer, in praise, in worship. This name should only be used in worship. It should not be tossed around frivolously. This is the name in Isaiah 45, 23. That every knee is going to bow to in every tongue in Isaiah's version says swear allegiance to this is a name of high preeminent glory Jesus Christ is given the name Lord only after he accomplishes something Jesus Christ is given the name Lord only only after he dies and rises again only after he ascends to the right hand of God the Father. That's when he is given the name Lord. David says, Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. It's amazing to watch God the Father refer to God the Son as the Lord. The Lord referred to the Lord as Lord. <laughs> There's reverence in the Trinity for this title, Lord. Listen to these scriptures. It said Jesus Christ is given the name Lord only after he accomplished his work that he came to do. John, 12, John 17, 4 and 5. I have accomplished the work that you sent me to do. Now glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with, with you before the world began. Jesus says it. I have accomplished the work that you sent me to do. Now glorify me in your own presence with what I had with you before the world began. In other words, call me Lord. Call me Lord, Lord. Hebrews 1, 3 and 4. After making purification for sins, I'm saying to you this morning that he gets this title of Lord only after the resurrection. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What name did he inherit? Lord! Ephesians 1, 20 and 21 God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named. 
Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That name is Lord. And it's given to no one but God. God the Father, God the Son. So the Lordship of Jesus Christ is only recognized by His people after His resurrection from the dead. The very man that wrote the book of Philippians, Paul, he's known as Saul in Acts chapter 9. When he meets the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus and he's blinded, Saul utters these words, Who are you, Lord? It's because he's resurrected and his glory is evident to mankind. Thus, after the resurrection, the name Jesus Christ is fulfilled, and he then adds to his title, Lord. God the Father's greatest exaltation of God the Son is giving him the name Lord. I want to take you to uh, this renaming incident of Jacob again. This time we'll read about it in Hosea's book. I love the the tenet of taking Scripture to interpret Scripture. Hosea gives us a commentary on what happened in uh, Genesis chapter 32. Hosea 12, 3-5, we read this. Uh, Hosea writes, In the womb he took his brother by the heel, that's Jacob and Esau, a reference to them in their mother's womb, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and he sought his favor. And then it goes on and reads about some more history of Jacob. It says, He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. And then we get these words in Hosea 12, 5. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is His memorial name. Wow. God establishes the name Lord as His memorial name. That's high and mighty, and preeminent, and glorious. And it demands reverence, and respect, and worship. And this memorial name of Lord is what God the Father bestows upon the Son when He rose Him from the dead. God said in Isaiah 48, 11, My glory I will not give to another. And so we take that kind of verse and this memorial name of Lord that God the Father bestows upon God the Son, and we then understand very clearly that God the Father and God the Son are the one and the same God. And then we add to this the person of the Holy Spirit, and we get the deep, bold, non-negotiable Christian doctrine of the Trinity. So here we have some high and mighty scriptures that are all centered upon the name of Jesus Christ and Lord. And we worship this morning together around these names because these names tell us about who he is and what he did. Well, look at this. Last, there's a response to this name, Lord. There is a response. This response is going to come in the future. I dare say some of this response is in the here and now. Because I stand before you this morning and say to you that I believe in Jesus Christ. That He was promised of God. And that He came to save me from my sins. And therefore, I say to Jesus Christ, You are my Lord. And I know many of you have said this with me. And so there is a sense in the here and now that we utter the name Lord to Jesus Christ because of the work that He did in our place as a substitute. 
But there's going to come a day when we're going to utter this in an ultimate way with a full understanding of what He did for us. And there's even a day when every human being that was ever made, whether he believes in Christ or not, will utter this. We see here that there's going to be a time when every knee is going to bow in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, and every tongue is going to confess in that same realm that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, let's look at these three realms. There's this place called heaven. All heavenly beings are going to utter the name Lord to Jesus Christ as they bow their knee. This is a reference in heaven to heavenly beings. Angels, yes. Redeemed Christian people who have already died, yes. Yes. Those people and angels will utter to Jesus Christ that He is Lord. Then there's those that are on the earth. I take this to mean those who are still living at the time of His second coming. There will be some, as 1 Thessalonians tells us in chapter 5, there will be some that when Jesus Christ comes again, they will be witnessing the second coming. And they will see all kinds of things. They will see bodies resurrected from the grave and united with their souls in the heavens as Christ comes. Those people that are on earth at that time are also going to bow their knee. And with their tongues, they're going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then there's those that are under the earth. I take this to mean that that is all who have died in unbelief and are buried. They're going to be resurrected. There are two. There, everyone is resurrected, some to eternal life and some to death. Condemnation. And so there's, those who are under the earth are going to be resurrected. And they're going to, at that time, utter to Jesus Christ that He is Lord. But tragically, it's going to be too late for those words to take effect on their eternity. When will this be declared? I've told you this is at the second coming of Jesus Christ that has been promised, that will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the yes of God. At the second coming, when people's eternity will be established once and for all, some are going to bow their knees and utter His name, Lord, by choice, in faith, with great joy in worship. Some will do that. But there's another group of people that will bow their knees and utter His name by choice, but they won't do it in faith in Him. They will do it according to their works. I give you Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, there's the name that is uttered. You would imagine that that name was uttered with a bowed knee. Lord, Lord. Jesus says, not everyone who utters to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone will. But only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he goes on to say, on that day, his second coming day, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And you could maybe insert, was I not a member of Rocky Point Baptist Church in your name? If your membership in church gets you what you think is salvation, you're wrong. It's faith in Jesus Christ. 
And then you become a member of a church that worships him. But church membership doesn't save you. Casting out demons doesn't save you. Doing many mighty works, prophesying doesn't save you. Because Jesus goes on to say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. You say to me, Lord, you did all these things in my name, but I never knew you because you did not believe in my substitutionary death on the cross, my exile into the grave for three days, and my resurrection on the third day. You don't believe in that, so I don't know you. And so at His second coming, there's going to be some that are going to be shocked when they say, Lord, Lord. But because they did it in works and not in faith, the Lord will say, depart from me. Then there's a third group. There's a third group that will bow their knee and utter His name by force. By mandate. And they will utter it in unbelief. Because God is going to cause every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because He is. And that is the respect and the reverence and the worship that is due to Him. And there's not a tongue and there's not a knee in the history of mankind that will not bow and confess. Some will do it gladly in worship and they will start the processional of singing holy 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 lord god almighty the one who was who is and is to come that will be sung and professed for all of eternity there's going to be some that are going to utter it thinking that they accomplished so much to merit their ability to call him lord when it was him that did all the work for them on the cross and they're going to be shocked When he says, hey, I didn't know you, depart. And then there's going to be these that are going to say, he really is Lord. And I hated him. I didn't believe in him. And it's too late. And they will for all of eternity in unconscious existence understand then that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And yet they will not be allowed to worship him rightly. In the new heavens and the new earth. But their eternity will be in hell. Where the flames are not quenched and their worm does not die. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. So have you uttered the name Lord to Jesus in faith and belief in his substitutionary work for you on the cross? And in the resurrection. It's the biggest question that could be put before you this morning. The utterance is the ultimate expression. In, in Paul, he writes on this often. In, in his writings, the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord is the ultimate line of demarcation. On one side of it is salvation and eternal life. And the, on, on the other side of it is condemnation and eternal death. Paul tells us in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You will get the benefit of His name, Jesus. Have you professed? Have you believed 
God the Son, Jesus Christ, was exalted in three degrees. He was resurrected, He ascended, and He sits at the right hand of God the Father. But this only after He condescended Himself in three degrees. He took on flesh and became man. He died. He died on a cross. That's what must be believed. And that must be behind your utterance to Him of Lord. So with this in mind, I want to conclude with three points of application. Real quick. Jesus means He will save His people from their sins. How do you get this salvation? By believing that He did what His name means very specifically for you. You need to believe that you are a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one does good. No one seeks after God. And the wages of sin is death. You need to believe that about yourself. And then you need to believe that the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, who died for you, even though He was without sin. He's a substitute. And if you believe in His substitution for you on the cross, then you will get the benefit of His name. Jesus. Second, the Hebrew title Messiah, it means promised one or anointed one. This is what Christ means. Once saved, once you are authentically saved, you are called by God to be an evangelist. And to go, just like Andrew went to his brother Peter, and say, I have found the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. His name is Jesus. He saves us from, his, from our sins. We are called to be evangelists. And to say the promised one has come, and he's done his work, and all is well. Would you believe in him? We are to urge people to utter the name Lord to Jesus now while there is still time. And then lastly, Jesus as Lord. Have you uttered this willfully and joyfully and worshipfully in the here and now? In, do you mean it when you utter it? So many times we think of ourselves as Lord. That's what sin is. When we go against the commands of God, we are in that moment saying, I am Lord. That's why sin is so horrible and wicked. But through repentance, we say, I'm not Lord. You are Lord. I've disobeyed you. I took your Lordship and tried to to grasp onto it myself. And I let it go now like you let it go. And I say, I'm not equal to you. You are my Lord. Would you forgive me in your name, Jesus? He bids you to give him the throne of your heart today in the hearing of this word. Would you do that? Maybe in these next few moments as we sing to close, you could just stop in the middle of all this and say, Jesus, from my heart of hearts, you are Lord of lords. To you be the glory. And may this be to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray.
Oh, Father in heaven, you have bestowed upon the name of God the Son the title Lord. You don't share that with anybody. It is a name only for you, for God. And this morning we've come to understand that you are one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this morning we have worshipped you as God the Father and God the Son. It's my prayer, Father, that you would, through the agency of God the Holy Spirit, give us hearts to understand this. Give us knees that would bow with joy. Give us tongues that would shout with a smile on our face that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the chief end of man. You made mankind. You made us to say to you, you are Lord. And so this morning is a result of hearing you through your scriptures. Would you prompt our hearts to call you by your most memorial name? Lord, and we pray this in the name of the promised one who saves us from our sins, Jesus Christ. Amen.